Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful songs that remind us of so much gospel truth and for the fact that you sent your son Jesus into the world to save sinners like us. We thank you for the fact that there is great joy and just a great sense of, of um, appreciation in our hearts for that wonderful act of love on, your, on our part. Father, thank you that you didn't have to do that but that you did it because you love the world. And so, Father, we, our hearts are full as we think about, Lord, not only the songs that we sung, but also opening up your word and being able to be confronted with your truth. Father, we do pray as we think about so much going on in our world. We pray for the Middle East. And we pray, Father, for your gospel to go forth um, all the more. Um, in and through the circumstances that are taking place. Father, we pray that you would be merciful, that you would be gracious. We pray that you would especially be with our brethren who are there, believers, born-again Christians, who are Arab or Palestinian or Jewish. There are believers in, from every tongue, nation, and tribe. And Father, we pray that you would be, your, be their comforter and their encourager and use them in a mighty way to live well under their trials. And Father, also to be spokesmen for the sake of Christ, for the sake of our exalted Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you would give us soft and tender hearts this morning as we open up your word, teach us, and show us wonderful things from your word. May we appropriate these truth to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And if you're able to stand with me in honor of God's word, please do so. I want to read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Philippians 1, verses 18 through 26. This is God's Word. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, we've been walking through Philippians on Sunday mornings. We've been seeing that perspective is important in the Christian life. Amen? Your outlook and the lenses through which you view life are crucial. And if you're going to live with joy and with a great sense of purpose as a believer in your Christian walk, then you need to keep the, the big picture in mind. And obviously for Christians, for us as believers... The kingdom really is the big picture that we need to keep in mind at all times. Even as you think about the events going on in the Middle East right now, how helpful is that, right? To be reminded of the fact that we know how the story ends in an ultimate sense, and that brings perspective when we keep the big picture in mind. Well, Paul was a man who lived with joy. 
and with a great sense of purpose because he kept that big picture of the glory of Christ in mind. His perspective, as we've been seeing, is a kingdom one. And his eyes were fixed on the progress of the gospel in all things. It seems that at all times, especially during his suffering and his time of trial, as we've been learning as well. He said things like these with regards to the progress of the gospel. Romans 1.16, and this is, keep in mind, he's writing to Roman Christians living in a pagan world in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he wrote this, For the word of the cross... Speaking of the message of the gospel, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in 1 Corinthians 9.23, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. This man's passion, pursuit, and purpose was the advancement of the gospel in the lives of, of people. Paul understood that apart from Jesus and his atoning work, people are hopeless and dead in their sins. And we've been seeing that even in the face of his trials and his suffering, even in the face of difficult circumstances and challenging relationships in his own ministry, he was undeterred by this all-consuming passion and desire and pursuit to see the gospel advanced by the grace of God. Now, as we look at our text this morning and the passage that I just read, There is now this transition, and I want you to note this, this transition from Paul's commitment that Christ be proclaimed no matter what through his present circumstances, that he would live well under his present circumstances. There's now this transition to his commitment that Christ would be exalted no matter what the future holds for him. He doesn't know. He's optimistic that he'll get out of jail, but he doesn't know for sure, and we see that tone throughout this passage. He's in jail. He doesn't know what's going to befall him. And yet he's committed to making much of Jesus in his circumstances with regards to the future. I want you to notice how the whole focus is on the future and in his confidence and hope in God. Look at verse 18. He says, yes, and I will, future tense, rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. Verse 20, that I will not be put to shame. And then in verse 20 as well, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's perspective of the future, in other words, is that no matter what happens to him in the future, he longs for Christ to be glorified, to be exalted, for the gospel to be advanced. This is whether he lives or he dies. This is a very countercultural way of thinking and living, if you think about it. At least for me, being a Christian living in America, what I notice, even in my own life oftentimes and in the lives of others, is that we oftentimes are thinking the opposite of what Paul articulates here, even as believers. We're far more concerned often in our lives with self-preservation, with security, with comfort. We don't tend to make choices that may be deemed risky from a human perspective. And yet, Paul is saying here, no matter what happens in the future, I want Christ to be exalted, whether by life or if the Lord takes me home, if if I pass from this earth. And for us, it's easy for us to lose sight of this kind of perspective, to lose sight of why we are here, right? And to simply pass the time 
to procure financial prosperity, to have life experiences, etc. These things are not evil in and of themselves. We know that. But it's when we elevate those things above Jesus and we fail to do what Christ has commanded us that those things become idols of worship and unhealthy in our lives. And they cause us to forget why we are here. That is to advance the cause of Christ. Right? No matter what happens in our world, brethren, and how God chooses to take us home and when, Our greatest passion, pursuit, priority, purpose should be that the name of Christ would be made much of, that he would be exalted. And this is really what we want to reflect upon today, and specifically what it means that you and I be sold out for gospel progress in life or in death. Along these lines, what I want us to see from our text is that when you're a kingdom-minded Christian, And when you're the kind of a Christian who is focused on the gospel progressing in this world, you will live by one passionate conviction and by one unwavering resolution. That's in your notes. First, your passionate conviction will be that living is Christ. Write that down. Your passionate conviction will be that living is Christ if you're a kingdom-focused individual. If I were to ask you, boil down your life, to one singular conviction, the greatest, most significant conviction of your life. What is it? And would that be that living is all about Jesus? That living is Christ for me? And that fleshes itself out in everything that I try to do by the grace of God. We see this in Paul's life. And Paul's passionate conviction, I want you to note, is based on his sure hope that he will one day be vindicated no matter what happens to him. Look at verse 18. He says, he asks, what then? What am I to make of gospel preachers who, who uh, mean me harm? This is kind of what we were looking at last week, that they are, they are rival ministry brothers who at least from what the text is telling us are preaching Christ, right? But they mean Paul harm. They seem to be doing things out of a wrong motivation. Paul says, what do I do with this? And his answer, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this, in that Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. I, my joy, says Paul, is in the fact that Jesus is even still being preached, even in the face of my detractors, those who may, be, who may have a right message but the wrong motive. Even in the midst of that, he subordinates his own feelings towards the situation, and he says it's all about the gospel being advanced. That was his conviction. That is his conviction. And it would have been enough for Paul to simply say rejoicing once, but notice that he repeats himself at the end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. That's both a repetition, obviously, but it's also a a transition to what he's about to say, namely in verse 19, for I know, this is my firm conviction, verse 19, that this, speaking of his trial, will turn out from my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You guys are praying for me? The Holy Spirit is, is providing for me. He's supporting me. He's encouraging me. He's assisting me, right? God works through means, even in our own lives, as in the life of Paul, through the prayers of the saints, we feel sustained, and the Holy Spirit is constantly ministering to us. Paul is thankful for these means of grace, prayer and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But what does he mean by deliverance? That this will turn out for my deliverance. What does he mean by that? Because at first glance, it seems that if, that as if Paul is talking about uh, his physical well-being, his physical salvation, maybe that he's going to be delivered from possible harm 
as he sits in jail? I really think, however, that this, it's far more than just physical deliverance that Paul is after here. In fact, multiple students of God's Word will point out that Paul's words in verse 19, when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance or for my salvation is the sense there, are almost identical words to Job's words in Job chapter 13 and verse 16. In that text, in Job 13, 16, in the midst of contemplating his own suffering, Job confidently asserts the same conviction. In the face of suffering, he says, this will also be my salvation. And even a few verses before that, he says, though, though God slay me, I will hope in God. And so Job declares, even in his own experience in the Old Testament, that no matter what God does, or how much God allows suffering in his life, even if it leads to physical death, God will surely vindicate him in the end. He will surely sustain him all the way into the end. He knows his Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And so Paul knows his Old Testament. And he, uh, promi- the promises of God for the, for the righteous. And he's essentially saying the same thing here. That no matter what happens to me in the future, God will sustain me through your prayers, through the provision of your precious Holy Spirit, God's precious Holy Spirit, I will ultimately be delivered. And I think we must pause there, brethren, to be comforted by the fact that even in our suffering, this is true for every single Christian. Amen? If you've repented of your sins and you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what happens to you in this broken world, one day God will vindicate you for the glory of His great name. He will sustain you all the way unto the end. This should bring great comfort to us and great encouragement. And even as we pray for our persecuted brethren in the Middle East or other parts of the world, this is true for them as well. I was thinking about that just this week, hearing about all the events going on in the Holy Land. And all the, just the hatred and the hostility taking place there. And I was thinking, man, for those brethren who are there in Christ, they one day will be vindicated. They will, God will sustain them all the way unto the end. This is essentially what Paul is getting at here. No matter what the future holds, whether I live or die, one thing I know for sure, I will be saved. There will be ultimate deliverance. And he's not just speaking here about his present circumstances because he's just not sure what's going to happen. He knows that this is an eschatological reality too. In fact, if you've read the book of Philippians over and over again, there's this eschatological mindset and perspective that Paul has. He talks about the day of Christ repeatedly, right? And that our citizenship is, is in heaven, he says, from which we eagerly await a Savior. There's this eschatological end times focus that Paul keeps pointing himself to and the Philippian believers. That's the idea here. When will this ultimate deliverance happen? On the final day of glory. On the day of the glorification of Paul as a follower of Christ. Notice the language in verse 20. This is according to my earnest expectation and hope, speaking of his ultimate salvation, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that without boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, he doesn't know for sure if he'll live or die, but what he does have a conviction about is this, that no matter whether he lives or dies, his earnest expectation and hope is that Jesus will never forsake him. He will not be put to shame in the end. He will be vindicated. And that's what Christian hope is, by the way. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Crossing our fingers, right? I hope that this really happens. I hope Jesus really does return. That's not biblical. 
That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is far from a mere possibility. Christian hope is this unwavering and confident expectation that Christ will be glorified, right? Whether we live or die, and that he will keep his promises to us by virtue of his atoning work. This unwavering and confident expectation that we have. It's a sure reality that we can bank on because of the character of God, because he's faithful and he's unchanging and he keeps his word and he's proven over the centuries, even in our own experience, reading history, biblical history, how God always delivers in his promises. Amen? And so in the light of this, Paul says, I know that I will not be put to shame, right? Scripture is abundantly clear, by the way, that the righteous will not ever be put to shame. That if you trust in Jesus Christ, you will not be put to shame in an ultimate sense. You may experience trials and difficulties in your life, and those come and go, and those are part of God's gift even to us, right? In that that type of suffering that is not because of our sin, but that is part of God's design as we learned last Sunday morning. And in that, we will not be put to shame, even if we experience discouragements and all of that in the present time. Romans 9.33, quoting Isaiah, says this, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, speaking of Christ, and he who believes in him in Christ will not be disappointed. You hear that? Literally, he will not be put to shame. Same kind of language there in Romans 9.33. He will not be disillusioned, he who believes in Christ. This is true, beloved, for the righteous, for those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who've trusted and and continue to trust in Jesus. Psalm 55, Psalm 55 in verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord, upon Yahweh, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken, to be disappointed. God will sustain us all the way until the end, is the point of Psalm 55, verse 22. Later on today, as you're looking over your notes or tomorrow morning, read through and meditate on Psalm 112. Speaking of the, of the righteous being remembered forever, Psalm 112 brings such comfort and encouragement to our hearts. And so Paul knows his Bible, that the Old Testament Scriptures are, are clear that the righteous will not be put to shame, will not be abandoned by God. And that is true for us as well as believers. Now question, why is it that Paul can have such hope? and confident expectation. How is it that someone can get to the point where they live with such a sense of self-abandonment? How does somebody get to that point? And I think we get the reason why in verse 21, which is probably the most important verse of the whole book of Philippians. Here's his reason why, verse 21, for to me, here's the reason for Paul's confident expectation and hope, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's Paul's passionate conviction, his life motto, if you will, his life manifesto, his his aim and the goal of his life is that Christ be the, the center and the circumference of everything that he does. Everything revolves around Jesus for Paul. If he lives, it's all about Christ. If he dies, he gets Christ. Whether he continues to live or is ushered into glory, it's all about seeing Jesus exalted in life or death. It doesn't matter. Christ Jesus was so much Paul's all in all that he spoke in these kinds of words. Listen to Galatians 2.20. 
I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Hear that? It's all about Christ for Paul. And if you were to ask that man, that sinner saved by grace, the Apostle Paul, Paul, how can you speak that way? His answer to us would be, how can I not speak that way? How can I not live for Jesus? He lived the perfect sinless life that I could never live. He died bearing my sins, Paul would say. He rose from the dead conquering sin and death. I couldn't do that. Paul's answer to us would be, how could I not live for Jesus in the light of what he's done for me, in the light of the fact that he died for my sins, that he shed his blood on my behalf, taking God's wrath for my sins? How could I not live for him? How could I not speak that way? How could I not sacrifice for Jesus? That would be his answer for us. It's like that wonderful song, My Hope is in the Lord. How many of you know of that hymn? My Hope is in the Lord. I love that hymn. And that beautiful line where it reads this, For me he died, for me he lived, and everlasting life and light he freely gives. And thus the refrain is, my hope is in the Lord. I'm anchored in, in Christ in light of what he's done for me. I'm anchored in him. It's all about him. See, Paul could declare this passionate conviction that living is Christ, brethren, because his, his affections were moved his internal affections were moved by the reality of a Redeemer who lives, who gave his life for him, you see. And unless you and I are moved in the same way, then we can't even identify with the verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, that's going to come across to us as something strange. These are odd words from this man. These are words of a, of a fanatic who talks like that. Listen, the person who talks that way is the person who is so awakened in their affections by the glory and the majesty and the beauty of the incomparable Christ. That kind of person speaks that way. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One brother comments this, such words seem very strange to many people these days. Verse 21, why? Because this life is generally regarded as being so wonderful that we must cling to it at all costs. We would have no trouble agreeing with Paul if he had said, I would prefer to die than to continue in this prison. We would not struggle with that kind of statement because we're all familiar with situations that are so dreadful that death is a relief to us. But Paul is not saying that death is better than the worst of life. What Paul is saying is that death is better than the best of life. In other words, he was not longing for death as the way out of unbearable circumstances. He was longing for death as the way into unspeakable, glorious circumstances. End quote. Get what he's saying? Some people may long for death simply to escape a, a wicked, painful world where things are understandably hard. But then comparatively speaking, when things are going well, they don't long to leave this earth. Why? Because they love the world too much. Their heart affections are too attached to the here and now. It's not about the then and there. It's about the here and now for them. So of course they don't want to die. Of course they would never want to leave this earth. It's not that we're running to die, by the way, right? But the idea here with Paul is like, he's saying it would be much better as we're going to see to be with Jesus. But if I'm going to be here, I'm going to be about fruitful service. I'm going to be productive while I'm here. 
People who live loving the world and attaching their affections to the here and now give evidence that they're not really living for Christ. I love what one pastor comments. If living is not Christ, then dying is not gain. If living is not Christ for you in the present, then dying is not gain. Think about it. Dying is only gain when Christ is your most treasured prize. Dying is only gain when Christ is your most cherished pearl. And so dig even deeper. If living for you is merely about success, relationships, security, popularity, comfort, money, prosperity, then dying is not gain. Dying won't be gain. Why? Because you will lose it all when you die. You can't take it with you. None of those physical toys you can take with you. 1 Timothy 6-7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And yet people are fixated on earthly toys. They spend their whole lives pursuing after things that at the end of the day are not going to go on forever and ever and ever. They can't take them with them. Remember what Jesus said? What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Right? What will you give in exchange for your soul? And yet people spend their whole lives pursuing worldly toys. So it's not worth it. On the other hand, on the other hand, if living is Christ, then losing success and security and popularity and comfort and money and even health to the point of your physical death, brothers and sisters, is gain. Why? Because by dying, you enter into perfect intimacy, unhindered fellowship with your Savior, the incomparable Christ. Amen? So we want to live in that world. So put your heart on the table right now and put yourself to the test today. What are you living for? What are you living for? If you can honestly say, you know, honestly, when I dig deep, I'm really living for money. I'm really living for money then. If that's you, recognize that to die is to leave it all behind because you can't take one penny with you. If you say to live is fame and popularity, I want to be known, then listen, know that when you die, you're going to be forgotten. Only those things that you did for the kingdom will God have in mind if you're a believer. If you say honestly, to live are my relationships, even just my family, then know that if that's you, then to die is to lose those connections unless they are in Christ, and they might look different in heaven, but you have those connections forever. If you say to live is sinful pleasure and pursuing all of those things, if that's you, then listen to me. To die is to cease from having it. For First John tells us that the world is passing away and also it's, its lusts, its evil desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Amen? There's a permanence in pursuing the will of God. All of these, or a combination of these, are not things that are going to lead to long-term, sustainable realities or happiness in your life. But if you say to live is Christ, then you and I can join Paul and say to die is gain. For when we die, we get Christ one day future in heaven. Amen? And I long for that, brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, but this is what I long for. I mean, to be quite honest... The rewards, people have debates about, you know, one day when we face Jesus and there's rewards and all of that, what is that going to consist of and what's going to be his measuring? I honestly don't care, to be honest with you. Only in so long as I just want to be faithful, fruitful, and help, helpful here. Amen? Amen? 
but I don't really care about the rewards. That's not the main thing for me in heaven. The other thing is people talk about, well, my, my, I'm going to see certain people that were in Christ, died in Christ, and I'm going to get to see them again. You know what? That's attractive to a certain extent or another, right? And we long to do that same thing too. But I got to tell you, there's one primary singular reason why I want to make it to heaven soon, and that is because I want to see Jesus. Christ. I long to see Christ. This is why we should long to be in heaven, because we want to be with Jesus. Christ himself is why we should want to go home, brothers and sisters. The Puritan pastor Richard Sipes comments here this, Life and death look to us like two evils of which we know not which is the less, but for the Apostle Paul, they look to him like two immense blessings of which he knows not which is the better. On either side of the veil, life or death, Jesus Christ is all things to him. Only that the conditions of the other side of death are such that the longed-for companionship of his master will be more perfectly realized there, end quote. Amen and amen. Is it your personal, passionate conviction that living is Christ? And notice, we're talking about a person, aren't we? We're not saying, Paul, Paul doesn't say living is my, is, is, living is my religion. Living is moralism, Right? Living is even his service. His service is done out of a heart of love for Christ because of what Christ has done for him. But Paul says living is Christ. It's all about him. It's a, he's a person with whom we are in relationship with. Can you say this? Living is Christ. It's all about communion with my Savior. It's all about serving him. That's what life is about. Now, it's not enough to say on that point, you know, for me to live is Christ. Yes, lots of professing Christians give lip service to that, okay? And I've met many of them over the years. But then the way they use their time and the way that they use their resources, their investments, their energies, their commitments, all betray that profession. So we have to put some meat to that. If truly living is Christ for you, and that's your passionate conviction, then your unwavering resolution will be that living is fruitful service. Write that down. Living is fruitful service. That's going to be your unwavering resolution. If truly living is Christ, it's going to show itself in the way that you live, in the way that you speak, in what you're pursuing, in what your affections are drawn toward. And as Paul develops this unwavering resolution here, he mentions a, a conflict and then a commitment. I want you to note this. There's a conflict and then a commitment. Notice his inner conflict in verses 22 to 24, his tension. And we can identify with this. Verse 22, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. We'll get to that in a minute. But here's Paul's inner conflict or tension. He says in verse 22, I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. Literally, I feel hemmed in on both sides. I feel, I feel torn, he says. I feel like I'm caught in the middle of two beautiful possibilities. But he makes it very clear what he would prefer, what is most desirable, and what is best. Notice, he says, having the desire, that's the word, by the way, epithumia, desire, tr translated often lust. And it can refer to a sinful or, or wholesome Holy desire, depending on the context. Here it's a, a strong, all-consuming, positive, godly desire that Paul is talking about. A wholesome type of all-encompassing desire. 
What does he desire? To depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Notice the language, by the way. It's not just better. It's very much better. Every word in our biblical text is important. Amen? Notice how he's piling on words. Not just better. He says very much better. Paul says, you know, we want to know my heart. If you were to really press me, and if I were to choose one of the two, there's no competition. I would rather be with Jesus. That's very much better. That's the most excellent thing that I could ever imagine doing. He's saying, I'd rather go home. By the way, mark it. Paul knows that there's the possibility that the pathway to glory to being with Jesus is possible martyrdom. Right? He could die. Boy, that's a different perspective again of death, isn't it? We try to avoid death at all costs. Certainly we shouldn't be running to, I want to die, right? And doing things to bring that about. That's reckless. That's not a good stewardship of your being. But we tend to avoid anything uncomfortable at all costs. But 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us that to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. Paul knows this, and he knows that physical martyrdom may very well be what gets him to his graduation, to his home going. For this world is not his home. He knows that. And every believer who has their mind set on the things above, we know that, that our citizenship is, is in heaven. We should pause here again, brethren, to be reminded of the significance of this. That for every single one of us who are believers, no matter how you go or when you go, you're going home. Amen? Later on, he says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful. Chapter 3, verse 20. What's the implication of that? What's the implication of that? We don't need to live in fear. We don't need to live anxious, worried about death. Instead, we should take encouragement and comfort that if you're in Christ, death is your graduation into glory. Amen? If you're in Jesus. This is why while the death of a Christian is sad and sorrowful, and we should come alongside of those who have lost a loved one, right? And weep with those who weep. And cry with those who are crying. Even though it is sad and sorrowful, however, for a believer to go home to be with Christ is a joyful celebration, right? It's a joyful celebration because that loved one in Christ has entered into joyful, eternal bliss with their Savior. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says that, that Christians may grieve, but not as those without hope. Why? Because if somebody's in Christ, they're with their Savior. It doesn't always solve our, complete, our sadness completely. But it certainly brings a certain level of hope and joyful expectation. Amen? Richard Sibes again, Why should we then fear death? For it is but a passage to Christ. Death is but a grim sergeant that lets us into a glorious palace, that strikes off our boots, that takes off our rags, that we may be clothed with better robes, that ends all our misery, that is the beginning of all our happiness. Why should we therefore be afraid of death? For it is but a departure to a better condition in the presence of our Savior. End quote. I love that. Like the song that says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Right? Says the song, this is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. I love those words. What a reminder to us of our hope that we have 
in Christ. And so Paul has this inner conflict, but he knows that no matter what happens, he can't lose. If he's, he's in Christ, it's a win-win situation, right? And it's the same for us, brothers and sisters. If you're in Jesus, you turn from your sins and you've trusted in Christ, it's a win-win for you, whether you live or die. Now watch this. Having described his inner conflict, he now describes his commitment or this unwavering resolution. Paul says to depart and be with Christ is far better, verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Underline that. For your sake. Note, even though going home would be far better for Paul, Paul considers the needs of his brethren as more important than his own. That flows from a heart of humility, by the way. And later on in chapter 2, verse 4, he's going to call them to the same to consider the needs of others as more important than his own. He's leading by example. That's what's reflected here. He's saying, it's for your sake that I remain on in the flesh. If that's God's will, it's for you. His unwavering resolution is fruitful service on their behalf. Look back in verse 22. Verse 22, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What does that consist of? Well, serving them, serving his brethren, continuing to do ministry. Paul's not going to sit around wasting his time if he stays on earth, just enjoying life in a Christless kind of way. If living is Christ and he's going to be spent laboring for God's people for the sake of the Great Commission, for evangelism and edification, that's what fruitful labor means here. And notice that it's, it's fruitful labor, not just labor. It's not just that we're called to be working for the Lord or serving the Lord, right? It's that we are called to be fruitful in that work. And that gets into our attitude, into our motives for the things that we do in Christian service. If we're going to be fruitful before the Lord, then we need to do things out of a, a heart of wanting to glorify God as the motivation for that service. What further does... Fruitful labor mean that we labor so that others are edified, that others are built up, so that others are encouraged, so that we might be a blessing to others. That's fruitful labor. That's fruitful service. Your daily prayer should be this. Lord, by your grace and with joy, help me to be faithful, helpful, and fruitful in my ministry to others. Help me to be faithful, fruitful, and helpful in my ministry to others. See, the aim is in our service is that others become like Christ. This is also part of fruitful laboring, right? That we might help others by the grace of God move in a direction towards Jesus even more. And in fact, Paul expands further on the nature of this fruitful service. Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And the, that phrase, in the faith, faith has to do with the, your Christian life. And so here he expresses his optimism that God may very well allow him to stay on earth, serving him on, on earth. But while he labors, he says, it's for your progress. It's for your joy in your Christian faith. That word progress there is that, that word that we talked about a week or two ago. Procopine, progress, which refers to an advancing army amidst or in the face of opposition. Paul says, I want to be that instrument in the hands of the Redeemer so that you all the more are advancing, are progressing as a believer. He says, my commitment is that you continue to 
Also live with joy as it pertains to your Christian life. That's why I want to, if I stay here, that's going to be my aim. And then in verse 26, notice the ultimate purpose of Paul's unwavering resolution. So that purpose statement, right? Your proud confidence, by which he means they're boasting or they're glorying, so that your proud confidence in me, and in other words, in what God does one way or the other in the life of the Apostle Paul, may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Here's a summation of that. Ready? What Paul is saying is that if and when God allows him to be reunited with them, they will abound in Christ Jesus, which is to say they will have an opportunity to exult all the more, to glory all the more, to boast all the more in Christ Jesus, whether Paul lives or dies. I love that. In a sense, he's simply reiterating what he said back in verse 20, that Christ would be exalted whether by life or death. And so the focus isn't so much on Paul, It's that as God works in and through Paul, whatever God reveals, they will exult in glory all the more in Jesus. But don't miss this. Don't miss Paul's unwavering resolution. He's mindful of them. He's resolved to do what's best for them. His passionate conviction, brethren, is that living is Christ, and this has substance behind it. Because this leads to his unwavering resolve that life is about fruitful service, fruitful laboring for the sake of Christ. This is how it shows itself that we truly are living for Christ. And so here's a good litmus test for us then. If living is truly Christ, then is your unwavering resolve to be fruitful in serving others? Is that your resolve? And if we were to test that, and survey just your last week or month, where has most of your time gone? Where are your resources being directed toward? What activities are taking up your energy? On what do your thoughts tend to linger? What are you fixated upon? What consumes your thinking, right? Because as our thinking goes, so will our actions. Where do your thoughts linger? You focused on the things above where Christ is or on the things that are on earth? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33? But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Are you invested in God's kingdom so that whether you live or die, Christ Jesus is exalted in and through you? We don't live for ourselves, brothers and sisters. If Christ has laid down his life for us, it's all about living for him. Amen? As a living sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he, Christ, died for all, so that they who live, ready, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Listen, because Christ gave his life for us. We owe him everything. We owe him everything. There's nothing that we should withhold from him. And so is there anything taking the place of Christ in your life in the present? I want to ask you that. And remember that it can't be Christ plus something else or someone else. It's not living as Christ plus my sinful pleasures. It's not living as Christ plus a relationship or relationships that I have. 
It's not Christ plus a fixation with education and career and job and all of that in a Christless kind of way, not for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's not Christ plus even family. Even family. Always guard against the sin of familyolatry. Yes, that can exist in any of us. It's not that either. What did Jesus say? If you are going to follow after me, you must be willing to even hate your own mother and father, etc., etc., even your own life if you want to follow after me. He says, in comparison to me, you better not elevate anyone above me or refrain from doing anything that I've called you to do because you elevate those things. Prosperity, possessions, retirement, traveling, vacationing, all of those things. Right? As long as I, as I get a little me time, then, you know, this Christian thing, this Christianity thing isn't so bad. I'll just sprinkle a little Jesus on all of my life, right? A little churchianity to go with it. No, brothers and sisters, it's not Christ plus any of these things. Because if it is, then Christ is not your all in all. And that's what this text is calling us to. Now, to be sure and to be clear. Our Christianity has implications within biblical parameters for all of those things that I just mentioned. God is not against pleasure, right, within his parameters, within the context even of a marriage with regards to intimacy. God is not against relationships. He's not against education or career. He's not against even family, prosperity, possessions, retirement, even vacationing or traveling or rest or retreats. He's not against those things. It's when we elevate those things above the will of God and the kingdom of God that they become idols of worship that take away our time and resources and energy, those things that should be directed toward Him through all of those things. Amen? So we always have to be guarding our hearts. We must never elevate any of those above Jesus. Otherwise, we give evidence that life is not really about Him. If living is not Christ, then dying will not be gain for you. One of my favorite texts in all of Scripture is found in Romans 14, and we'll close here. Verse 7, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live We live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Amen? May this be true of us, brethren, and may we live in the light of the fact that Christ is our great Redeemer who's given everything for us. We should be willing to give everything for Him. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank You so much for these wonderful, powerful reminders of the fact that everything is about Christ Before sin entered into the world, in Genesis 3, it was your intent and design that we would exist in perfect relationship with you, unhindered by sin. Father, thank you that Christ has made it possible for us, even in the present, to enjoy intimacy with you through faith in him, and that one day future, we await for a time when we will experience joy in the presence of Christ, fullness of joy, unhindered by sin, unhindered by weakness. Father, also help us to be mindful of the fact that if living is Christ, that we should be fleshing that out in the way that we serve, in the way that we give our lives for the good of others, for the benefit of others. Help us to do this by your grace and in the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.